welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in, coming back to the show. First time listeners finding the show, welcome aboard. Always happy to have you. Hope you've had a chance to go over to Counterpunch in the last couple of weeks. You will notice that Counterpunch is out there every single day with brand new content for anybody interested in all of the competing perspectives on the left, whether it's Ukraine, whether it's issues of economic development, whether it is uh, indigenous rights issues, whether it is things going on elsewhere uh, around the world. Counterpunch is the place to go to get all of the perspectives. And if you like Counterpunch and you like having that publication that you can rely on every single day, I would urge you to go over and get a subscription to Counterpunch Plus. Uh, Longtime subscribers know that our magazine was a stalwart on the left. That magazine is, of course, no longer printed on paper, but all of those columns, including the great stuff from Jeff Sinclair, all of our regular contributors, and many others are available on Counterpunch Plus. Go to the website, get that subscription, make the yearly payment, and enjoy access to really some of the best minds on the left. I really do believe that. I don't just make the pitch because I do the podcast. I say it because I believe it. And speaking of very important perspectives on the left, one of the things that Counterpunch has really been out in the forefront on for many, many years are issues of environmental degradation and the questions about economic development and so-called growth. And there's a a lot of talk now on the left about the issue of growth, dare I say the ideology of growth. And I have an excellent guest with me today to talk about some of these issues. Aaron Van Sinchen is with me. Aaron is a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Vermont. He is also the co-author of the brand new book that I could not recommend any more highly, The Future is Degrowth, A Guide to a World Beyond Capitalism, Really excited to talk about this book with him. Aaron Van Sinchen, welcome to Counterpunch. Thank you so much, Eric. Thank you so much for uh, writing this book, which is so timely, so important, and so needed. And of course, I'm going to ask you uh, to, to answer the most rudimentary question of all, Aaron, as we begin. What is degrowth? All right. Uh, I'm ready for this. <laughs> so degrowth is... Um, basically the proposal that we can have a society that achieves well-being for all which doesn't necessarily require economic growth um in fact doesn't need it um and at the same time uh, in the short term it will have to uh, scale down on the amount of material and energy that it uses so that's the basic proposal so I think that the obvious question for many of us on the left would be, so how do you, how do you have degrowth without destroying the lives of millions and millions and millions of people? Yeah. So we're, we've been told for a long time now that economic growth is the thing that um, provides welfare and benefits for people. But if you look at the things that actually do provide that, um, you know, that offer people a good life, those are things that generally work best outside of the market, therefore not uh, uh, not financed by economic growth. Uh, so those are things like healthcare, um, education, childcare, housing, um, any anything that really offers people a, a good life. Um, and once you start uh, taking things out of the market, uh, you really 
can uh, can meet people's needs way way better. Um, and so something that we're arguing is that um, it's kind of been a foul. Uh, um, uh, we've been told <laughs> that we need economic growth to even fund those things, but that's not necessarily true. Um, this idea is actually extremely recent that economic growth is what we need. And it came about as a way to actually um, distract us from uh, from the real uh, needs that we have and the from the way that uh, the economy is basically bent towards um, maximizing profit for the rich, which doesn't actually trickle down to the poor. So it sounds to me like degrowth is another way of saying uh, critique of capitalism, right? Because capitalism is predicated on growth. So in essence, you can't be in favor of degrowth without also being in favor of an anti-capitalist worldview, right? That's right. So we argue in our book, we explicitly put forward, you know, not everyone agrees with this, but we put forward that degrowth means a critique of capitalism. So I want to ask you a little bit about uh, a, a term that gets used throughout the book and in various parts, but I think it's worth interrogating a little bit. Uh, you use the, you and your co-authors um, use the phrase hegemony of growth. Can you explain what the hegemony of growth is, what it looks like, and I think maybe most relevant, how that actually translates in governance under various systems? Yeah, so we often understand capitalism as as a system based on on the maximization of profit. So on or what some people call accumulation or the expansion. What we argue is that growth is kind of like the 20th century cherry on top of capitalism. It's the ideology that justifies the current system. So economic growth that idea hasn't been around forever. It only really was introduced in the late 1940s when you had this big conflict between, um, after the uh, Second World War, you had this big conflict between uh, specifically uh, the United States and um, the rising uh, communist and third world nations. And uh, at the same time within the United States, you had a conflict between a, a growing labor movement and the capitalist classes that were trying to um, regain uh, their their profits after the Second World War wiped a lot of them out. Um, so uh, economic growth entered into that environment as an ideology um, that justified basically the maximization of profit. It's the idea that um, you can measure the health of an economy by how much profit is being made. So gross national product, and now we call it gross domestic product, and or GDP. And um, we argue that, that it's basically a, hegemon a, a hegemonic system where since that time, we, we've come to accept it as, as the way things are. Whenever uh, some, some, something happens, we talk about how much it affected GDP. Um, whenever uh, people protest or whenever people try to um, resist some kind of development, 
um, they're told that they're uh, affecting GDP, which in turn, you know, uh, is is bad for the country, is bad for working people. Um, so basically, growth has become this kind of new tool in the toolbox to convince us, um, convince the working class, and then also convince the global south of why they need to, uh, for example, cut public services or why they should um, be happy with what they've got or why they shouldn't demand more. So Aaron, capitalism, of course, dates back at least into the uh, late 18th and early 19th centuries. And you're telling me that the idea of growth only becomes hegemonic in the 1940s after the war. So what was growth in the context of capitalism before that? Yeah, so in, in, in the earlier period of capitalism, um, things have changed a lot. We, what we argue in the book is that um, there's precedence to this uh, idea of economic growth, um, and those precedents are in kind of the um, the liberal uh, economic mindset, which is that markets are separate from society; they they kind of rule and govern themselves. And that was based on the idea that humanity is is separate from nature, um, that men are inherently rational uh, rather than cooperative beings. Um, and those kinds of ideas really arose uh, and became uh, hegemonic uh, in, in the earlier uh, centuries of, of capitalism. And growth is kind of, it's an outgrowth of that idea. Um, at the same time, we also argue that um, even then, um, you could talk about a kind of material growth. So not uh, ideological or social growth. Um, you could talk about uh, growth of ma the material side of the economy. And when you trace certain things like how much um, energy an economy uses, how much uh, pollution it has, um, how what the throughput is of an economic system, you can start seeing that acceleration happen basically in, in the um, 18th, 19th centuries. And then it starts accelerating exponentially um, until now. And so we argue that not only does capitalism have this uh, kind of drive for expansion, it also has an has a inherent material expansionist element, so a material growth. Indeed. And of course, uh, as degrowth becomes the specter haunting capitalism, so too does a specter haunter, haunt degrowth, and that is the specter of Thomas Malthus. So tell me how degrowth isn't just dressed up Malthusian thinking, Aaron. Yeah, so this gets um, kind of aimed at the degrowth argument a lot. They say it's, it's a neo-Malthusianism. So Malthus uh, was Thomas Malthus. He was a, a, a pastor and a political economist. He was famous for um, arguing that basically as economy grows, um, it's actually better for, it was basically a, an argument for why poor people need to be uh, limited and for why um, we shouldn't encourage poor people to reproduce because they're a drag on, on the economy. Um, and so a lot of people, when they say, when they hear degrowth, they hear that kind of similar argument against population growth for the sake of uh, the economy. 
The thing is, Malthus, he was actually, when we talk about liberal economics, he was the founding father of, of liberal economics. What he argued was that in order for economic growth to, um, to, uh, to, uh, you know, max in order for, in order so that we can maximize economic growth, we need to, um, we need to limit the, uh, working class, poor populations. So it was, it was for the sake of economic growth that he saw there was some kind of natural limit, um, an imposed limit and some kind of uh, imposed scarcity of the world. And degrowth is basically the opposite of that. It's to say that actually um, we don't need economic growth. We're against the idea that we're, we need to build a society based purely on economic growth. What we need is a society that achieves well-being and satisfies people's needs for all. Um, so what we, we argue is that a, a degrowth society would actually benefit working class people. And um, there's almost, there's no degrowth proponents who are uh, for limiting uh, population in itself. That's not the point. The point is for um, what we argue for a economy based on public abundance. So it's basically flipping the Malthusian logic of mainstream economics, which is about how to overcome scarcity, flipping that on its head and to say, we can build an economy based on abundance for everyone rather than uh, scarcity for everyone and abundance for those who have money. Right. And I don't think you can really talk about Malthus without talking about British imperialism, can you? Exactly. Yeah. He, he was a total product of his time and, and his economic outlook was, was really developed to, to justify um, the British genocide and, and murder of, of peoples all around the world. So I want to ask you a question about, uh, you know, this, uh, this, this, this very, this buzzword that we all hear so much, democracy. Tell me about democracy and specifically tell me how degrowth is democratic. How can degrowth be controlled in a democratic fashion or is this just a pipe dream? So I think um, something that a lot of people um, kind of miss about degrowth is that um, in, in, in our opinion, when we wrote the book, we said degrowth is the politicization of, um, of a society's material um, and energy use. So what we're arguing is essentially that um, how much stuff a society uses, that's something that should be a political thing. That's something that we should talk about and deliberate as a society. Um, if, if, if our economy is, is driving, um, the collapse of environmental systems, if it's meeting, uh, hitting a hard wall against pl planetary boundaries, um, and if it's based on, you know, off outsourcing off offshoring pollution on poor countries and, um, on poor communities, we have to talk about that. Um, 
so degrowth essentially is there's this whole is about there's this whole sphere of of how the economy works that's totally ignored um and we're trying to bring that into the political debate and what that means is actually if we're um making it a, a part of our politics that means we're trying to and um introduce it into uh, the democratic process we're trying to make it uh, something that we as a society deliberate about it's also seems like a reflection of our values on the left I, I i kept encountering this idea as i read through the book that it's not just about the actual sort of degrowth of the material you know uh, of consumption and of our economic system and so forth but degrowth is actually sort of a reflection of what i would think of as the core values of socialism of uh anti-capitalist ideology so can you talk about how it reflects our values values on the left. Yes, I think that's really the the key here is you know once you start thinking about you know what what do we want as a society um and once you start kind of moving away from this idea that economic growth is the primary thing that we want as a society then it kind of blows open all kinds of possibilities um and you start having to deal with questions like what wait what do we actually want as a society what are our values um what what can we uh prioritize um and so we we have a a slogan um which is uh less less commodities more relations um and in in french uh, it comes from french moi de bien plus de lien um it rhymes a bit better <laughs> but um Degrowth is basically about we we could have a society that's based on um, meeting uh, that's based on valuing the kind of labor that maintains our society. It values women's labor. It values childcare. It values care for the elderly. It it values the kind of work that is required to take care of our of the ecosystems that we live in. Um, and right now all of that is not valued in a society um where we we have an economy where um the things that are valued are the things that exploit people um and those have the most value and so we're trying to really just expand and enter and and uh, explode <laughs> this conversation about about what is valuable Indeed. Um, I want to ask you something else before we head to the break. And, and, and this, I guess maybe I'm teasing a little bit the discussion we'll have after the break, but I want to talk about the different approaches to, I guess, what you might call the, uh, you know, the, the civilizational crisis that we're all facing, the ecological crisis, the cascading ecological crises. Um, so there is kind of one view that the way to fix this is through a sort of a neoliberal kind of green growth idea. And this, of course, I mean, well, I'll let you, I'll let you lay that out. So can you talk about neoliberal green growth and also this sort of neo-fascist, neo-feudal eco-apartheid, right? And if you could contrast these two I guess you could say political paths in this context and the dangers of both of them. 
Yeah, uh, that's a really important question. And I, I think, though, most listeners might not have heard those terms in exactly those wor- words, but I, I think you'll see it when you recognize it. Is there, There's one option that we're presented with, which is basically as climate change wreaks havoc around the world um, in different communities, in rural areas, in, in certain cities, um, as wildfires happen everywhere, as hurricanes become stronger and stronger, the, the answer is uh, increasingly um, close the borders. Uh, we're we're going to close the borders and we're going to protect the wealthy um, that already have access to the greatest privileges. And we're going to um, basically prioritize uh, a kind of a war economy <laughs> where, um, where we um, make it make the priority of um, basically an economy that's based on exclusion and um, based on uh, increasing extraction around the world for the benefit of, of the wealthy and of a certain minority class. And you can see that kind of um, proposal starting, that kind of idea starting to happen, uh, you know, in the United States uh, with Trump, um, but then also Jair Bolsonaro was a really good example where it was basically about this kind of um, uh, denial of climate change, but at the same time, a complete um, ramping up of, of the extraction and destruction of the Amazon and uh, a reliance on, uh, on violent discourse. And then on the other hand, you have this other alternative that I think a lot of people will recognize is uh, this this future that's um, based on high-tech innovation. Um, you know, it's the Silicon Valley dream, the Bill Gates dream, that all we have to do is just innovate our way out of this crisis. And um, the idea is that the people who are the wealthiest are the people who can get us out of here as well. So... The more money you have, the greener you can be, and uh, because you're the most innovative, and and so it's this ideology called green growth, which which is basically that the people at the very cutting edge of sustainability are the wealthiest, and um, we can solve the problems with uh, with uh, just scaling up certain certain technologies like capturing carbon or um, electric vehicles or um, and these and that is really like that's the basically the um, Joe Biden uh, economy is is just we're, we're gonna fund all these innovative technologies all these green technologies without actually um, confronting the the kinds of contradictions that that the these economies rely on that these technologies rely on Well, we have defined the enemies, that is the green growth neoliberals and the eco-apartheid fascists, and we can take a break because on the other side of the break, we're going to define the the dividing lines on the left, the battle lines that have been drawn over these questions on the left. Those are, of course, the ones that we probably are going to be most encountering in our little left-wing 
world. So let's take a quick break. I'm going to continue the conversation with Aaron Van Singen about degrowth here on Counterpunch Radio. Listen to the music. We'll be right back. If the clock strikes midnight, then what becomes of our demonstrations? chatting with Aaron Van Sinchen, the book. You absolutely got to get yourselves a copy. The Future is Degrowth, A Guide to a World Beyond Capitalism, a real must read. Uh, these are some of the most pressing questions of our time, maybe the most pressing question of our time. And I think it's worth paying attention to all of these debates. And uh, before the break, we were talking about some of the you know, call it mainstream debates among the the liberal class and the right wing fascists, uh, you know, the ascendant far right and so forth. But here on the left, we also have very clear dividing lines on these questions. So, Aaron, I want to ask you if you could sketch out for us how the how the line gets drawn on the left, the line between what you might call left productivism or Prometheanism or whatever you might want to call it, left productivism, fully automated luxury communism, space gay communism, whatever the memes might say. Um, and then on the other hand, we have uh, what we might call left libertarianism, which uh, I think is much more in the camp of questioning growth, whereas the sort of left productivists don't. So here's the question, Aaron. Can you explain these differences, where they come from, and why this debate on the left is so critical? Yeah, I, I think that's uh, really kind of where we find ourselves now and where on the left um, we're, we're going to be having a lot of debates going forward. And it really comes down to um, 
And, and that's actually really why we wrote this book, because we wanted to put out our stake. We actually need to push for a certain kind of leftism, and we need to integrate certain kinds of critique of capital um, into the left. And uh, so, yeah, you, you mentioned in our book, we, we use this kind of uh, term, a dividing line of left productivism and left libertarianism. And so... We use the word libertarian. I think Americans might get a little bit confused here because li libertarians um, are typically identified with the right. Um, but libertarian was initially um, in 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 Europe. It was uh, initially what people called anarchism. It was a, a leftist movement that basically argued for um, you. You have to make. Uh, you, we can't have a society based on domination. We can't have a society based on, on hierarchy. And um, we have to build the movements against capitalism in a way that um, basically uh, um, actualizes the world that we want to live in. And um, so there's a focus on grassroots movements. There's a focus on bottom-up change. And also there's a, a critique of these kinds of highly centralized domineering structures. Um, and on the other hand, you have uh, left productivism. And this is really rooted in, in a history of what you could call like communist counter movements against capitalism. So you have these highly centralized state communist uh, regimes, saw uh, a lot of the um, their Opponents and the thinkers like Lenin, um, Stalin, Mao, uh, they saw that the way to battle capitalism uh, was basically to outproduce capitalism, to um, to grow uh, economy in, in a way that competes against capitalism. And there's a lot of debates, like deeper debates, to be had here because it, it really <laughs> comes down to um, how how you read. Um, some of these earlier critics of capitalism, like Karl Marx, where you know there's an argument that Karl Marx was um, basically a Pro Promethean thinker. He 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 believed that capitalism was the stage um, that would lead to communism, and that you actually needed to have this kind of massive uh, earth changing system that um, that would pave the way for a totally different society um, run by the working class, a, a, the dictatorship of the proletariat. Uh, we can get really deep into this debate, um, but what we, what we point out is that um, at this point, we have to integrate um, into our analysis things that Marx might never have been aware of. And that's basically since his lifetime, we've we've um, massively accelerated the destruction of biodiversity. We've um, massively uh, uh, transformed the earth and and um, destroyed ecosystems all around the earth at the expense of um, genocidal uh, warfare. Um, mostly on on black and brown people um, of of the global south, and 
we're, we're in a situation where um, a lot of these kind of uh, ideals that we we bas- that communism basically means accelerating capitalism into a, a new system, into a highly centralized system. Um, that I don't think um, it's not it's not actually viable anymore. And uh, degrowth kind of comes into this and and argues that yes, we need to have a critique of capitalism and we need to understand capitalist political economy. And there are things from capitalism that we can um, integrate and that have changed the world um, in the way that we can um, that we can admire. <laughs> so degrowth isn't an anti-modern movement, but we also have to make the the kinds of transformation of the earth and the way that capitalism completely undermines its own ability to to reproduce itself we have to make that uh, a part of our politics and so degrowth for that reason it aligns itself with grassroots movements it aligns itself with movements from the global south and and basically proposes an alternative a form of development that doesn't have to move uh, through um, highly degrading and um, unjust industrialization. We can find different paths for development that don't require that kind of um, yeah destruction of its own base of of wealth, which is which is the earth. Aaron, the counter argument from the left productivist camp would be that we're finding new ways of uh, of of development and growth that can raise standards of living for those at the bottom, especially in the global south, without uh, causing the kind of irreparable damage you can imagine. You know, visions of uh, I don't know editors of Jacobin magazine mining asteroids for precious metals. I don't know. You know what I mean? Like some kind of vision of a future society in which we're, you know, traveling through the cosmos and just stealing resources from other rocks, I guess. Right. So, I mean, I'm being somewhat silly, but like, isn't that basically what they envision? Yeah, you're not being silly at all. This is the argument proposed by Aaron Bastani, who wrote the book, uh, Fully Automated uh, Luxury Communism. And he argues that we basically need to accelerate automation. We need to accelerate. um, We have to have a vision of a fully technologized communism and which would eventually mean and require mining asteroids. And it would mean just uh, basically no limits to the amount of resources that we can use. Um, where, where degrowth comes in, and I think that's why degrowth is, is so valuable for the left today, it, it comes back to this um, idea, um, what, what is called social metabolism. So social metabolism is basically the, the way that a human might have metabolism. Um, you know, we eat stuff, and then we eject it, and we, use, we need to kind of do that um, continuously throughout the day to keep our bodies going. A society also has that. So we need a certain amount of energy and um, we use we produce a certain amount of waste. And right now, um, the social metabolism of, of the global economy is accelerating exponentially. And that's leading to these kinds of crises and inflection points of, of no return. And 
what what degrowth argues is that what that kind of social metabolism it has a a rate at which you can have a much better democratic system so the more the more you input and the more you output it you, the more you start increasing complexity and the more entropy you have like the more things start degrading and the more um things kind of start going haywire so even if you had a society that's based on you know max on asteroids and on just as much solar power as possible nuclear energy you would still need to have all these inputs that um you're constantly constantly trying to put into the system and you would still have these sacrifice zones of where do you put all the waste um and so degrowth isn't arguing that this is uh something that forever we need to have just a static economy that doesn't change its social metabolism what it's arguing is that the current capitalist economy is going so fast is is expanding at such a extremely fast rate that we need to slow it down because if we don't slow it down it's going to destroy us all and we can't switch to a socialist the ideal fully audited luxury communist regime and at, without um without also slowing it down first in this economy we can't decouple economic growth from environmental impacts as um the left productivists think that we can um because the way that they think that we can is basically by, by relying on technological innovation and then the the argument looks pretty similar to uh, the green the neoliberal green growth because instead of seeing that you can actually create a different lifestyle that doesn't demand that much um energy and doesn't demand that much waste um they they can only basically see the lifestyle that exists now as the ideal lifestyle and that people wouldn't want anything different from that so what we're talking about is really um instead of believing that we can decouple economic growth from environmental uh, from environmental impacts degrowth is about we can decouple um well-being from a um immensely harmful economic system we, we can by downscaling the amount of energy and material that we use um as as a necessity we can do that that doesn't mean that sometime in the future we could scale up again in a sustainable way but right now this is like the priority right now because we're heading to a cliff there are many 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 divides when it comes to this debate we are already talking a little bit about the divide between left and right eco-fascists versus neoliberals versus degrowth and so forth the divides on the left as we've already talked about but there's another major divide that really i think figures centrally in any discussion about degrowth and that's the divide between the global north and the global south um one of the one of the principal um counter arguments to to degrowth is the idea that it is a a a a 
global north developed economy privileged kind of lifestyle worldview whereby people in the developed countries who have already lived a life of consumerism and have everything at their fingertips in in the life in a lifestyle of growth etc that they're now trying to put the brakes on people in the global south from having some of the same benefits that they have had their entire life in other words the idea being that uh restricting growth is essentially a weapon to be wielded against the poorest countries in the world so i'd like to give you a chance to respond to that in what ways is degrowth not a war on the global south so degrowth starts specifically from the understanding that um we need a a economy that is for global justice so that that's really its starting point um and maybe a first way to kind of talk about that is that talking about the roots of degrowth so degrowth came as a kind of provocative concept it came out of this out of the 80s and 90s where you started having this idea of sustainable development that it's kind of the predecessor of of green growth degrowth was coined as this kind of joke concept which was sustainable degrowth and it it really did that from drawing from and learning from global south movements which were fighting against this development model that was being imposed on global south countries by uh organizations like the world bank the imf the wto so it was this context of the alter globalization movement we wanted a different kind of globalization one that didn't um involve what was at the time called structural adjustment which was really just um basically organizations like the world bank threatening uh countries to not give them loans unless they cut funding from all their public institutions and unless they open up their the wealth of their countries um to extractive industry and it was really it was really like um at the time it was a way of completely demolishing and crippling global south movements um bringing them to their knees because at the time global south movements were uh building alliances with each other and basically pushing their their uh, governments to nationalize uh these industries and to to protect their own sovereign wealth and so it it really was this um this idea of of economic development um of of growth was imposed on the global south and degrowth emerged as a reaction as as a kind of um global north solidarity movement with global south movements So that's kind of the context of where degrowth comes from. But if you think about it practically, um you know, what would degrowth policies look like? Uh there is this idea that degrowth comes uh degrowth you can only want less if you've had it all, you know. Um the thing is degrowth is in general a proposal specifically for the global north. because it's the global north that carries the vast burden of of uh climate change climate breakdown of environmental destruction um what people call ecological debt or climate debt um it's really the global north that maybe carries historically 90 95% of the burden of carbon emissions so degrowth is a movement 
in solidarity with the global south for the global north. The global north has the responsibility to scale back its resource use, but at the same time, it has the responsibility to undo the decades, of the centuries of uneven development, um, which has characterized uh, what, which has allowed um, and and powered global north economies until now. So if you talk about green growth, um, you know, let's say we're going to um, electrify all cars in, in the United States, or we're going to build out um, solar panels everywhere. That um, requires a massive amount of lithium, of, of rare minerals, which are mined in, in the global south. And now we're seeing like different countries um, in the global south having to basically deal with a, a green extractivist um, mining, um, a new green extraction, extractivism. And so what degrowth is arguing is that even if we propose things like the Green New Deal, we need to make those kinds of policies um, take into account uh, the, the needs of the global south. We need to be able to align uh, green policies in the north with the needs of the global south. So yeah, that's, that's kind of where degrowth is coming from in that. You just used the term. You kind of uh, preempted my question here. So let's talk about the Green New Deal. That's a word. That's a term that a lot of people have, of course, heard uh, popularized in the last several years by AOC and other young uh, politicians and so forth. So how does the Green New Deal fit into this debate? Because I think it's uh, probably not um, not a you know I think it's probably pretty likely that people who know about the Green New Deal from a uh, socialist perspective would be skeptical of the Green New Deal because well the New Deal was a capitalist project wasn't it the Green New Deal is a capitalist project isn't it Yeah so in in the book we um, we we really actually tried to engage with this conversation about the Green New Deal. And the first thing to note is that there's lots of Green New Deals. And yeah, and the history of the New Deal was as, um, yeah, it was as a way to kind of fend off the real demands that the labor movement was was pushing for and to provide some kinds of gains for, for the working class, but really restructure the U.S. economy and, and you know, in post-World War II also restructure Europe in this way that would... Uh, maximize uh, growth, economic growth. And, and the Green New Deal kind of, uh, you know, maybe uh, plays on the, the nostalgia behind, behind that really transformative um, and, and very complex uh, era. And, and it's, it's really like there's, there's just many kinds of Green New Deal's proposals out there, um, and they vary from all kinds. And we argue that we shouldn't necessarily reject all of them because they provide a kind of um, way that we can insert ourselves into the public discussion and, and talk about what's actually needed and talk about what uh, a sustainable uh, transition, a just transition could look like. Um, so we don't put 
place ourselves against the Green New Deal per se, um, but we do um, say that the Green New Deal, um, if it is at all just, has to take into account, first of all, um, the, the relationship of uneven development with the Global South. And a lot of Green New Deal proposals do not do that at all. Um, it would mean basically if, yeah, as I said, if we're electrifying um, everything, where are the minerals going to come from that, that power that? So we need to have a kind of a model of, of Green New Deal that actually transforms the economy and at the same time drastically reduces the amount of material and energy that the economy relies on in a just way. And that's definitely possible. A lot of, we can talk about that, but a, a lot of, there's a lot of research showing that you can actually meet well-being, um, meet people's needs by massively changing um, the kind of infrastructure that you use. In the last few minutes that we have here, um, Aaron, I want to ask you a little bit about politics of all of this because you know degrowth you can talk about it uh you know all day long you can talk about the environmental situation the ecological crises the 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 you know climate change ocean acidification all the different crises that are you know barreling down upon us but i don't know that it really matters unless we can place all of this understanding into the context of a political project. And so I guess the, my, my question for you is, how does degrowth go from being an ideology and a principle to an actual political project that exists in the real world? How does degrowth, for lack of a better word, get power? Blueprints are um, usually not a good idea because things happen and you don't really know. Um, you can't really predict them. You know, though we've been warned by epidemiologists that COVID-19 would happen when it happened, um, a lot of us were, even then, taken by surprise. And it, it did things that we would never have expected. But what we do argue is that there's ways of understanding what kinds of strategy that we can take and strengthening those strategies and expanding them and, and basically kind of pushing for a, a multi-level power. So the first, there's three broad strategies that we argue that we should be expanding and, and pushing for. Um, the first one is what we call nautopias, and these are utopias that exist in the here and now. So this could be anything from, you know, your local community garden to a cooperative that you're a part of to um, maybe like the Zapatistas or the, uh, the Kurdish um, Kurdish Rojava, where they're experimenting with these new models, um, new economic and political models. And the idea behind Nautopias is that it's, they expand the realm of what's possible. Once you engage with these projects, you can um, really uh, see new ways of doing things. And that can inspire you once maybe a crisis hits, once you have an opportunity and you come to power to change things. And the other one is policies. We can have these policies that basically expand uh, also uh, the, the political playing ground. For example, if you push for a four-day week instead of a five-day week, all of a sudden people have time 
if you push for um, what we call universal basic services, all of a sudden people have the space to get politically involved, and they they have the they start seeing that we can build an economy on a totally different system. And then the last one is is what we call ruptural strategies or counter hegemonic strategies, and this is direct actions, uh, union organizing, strikes, um, but also political education. Um, really, uh, these effort of of reconfiguring um, and rethinking um, what our society can look like, and and building a popular base of power, so that even if the politicians we want are in power, they're probably not going to have the power to make the changes that they want to change. Even then, we need to have popular mobilizing to to hold them accountable. Last question, Aaron. It's one of the ones I often ask my guests. Um, we do have a lot of younger people who listen to this podcast who, you know, maybe they're just uh, wetting their feet in politics or maybe they're just uh, coming around to these ideas of degrowth and so forth. And so I want to give you an opportunity to speak to those people who might be wondering, well, I agree with this guy. I mean, I agree with degrowth. I agree with everything he's saying, but it just seems like, what could I even do? How do I even get involved in something like that? What would you say to them? I, I, I've been doing quite a few visiting lectures and engaging with a lot of young people. And there's a real sense of, honestly, there's a sense of hopelessness. Like they know very well what, what's happening. Um, but it it really feels like they don't have um, the ability to see that there's that really they have the power to to do something about it. And I think what we argue in the book is we need utopian thinking. Um, and the the word utopia gets a bad rap sometimes, but really we need to be able to imagine. It starts with the imagination, really. Like we can imagine. A new world, but then how do you carry that out? And I think it, it kind of like comes back to those three strategies. Look around you, um, in your town, in where you live, in your neighborhood, on your block. What are people already doing that looks like that? What are people already doing that looks like a different economy? Is there a co-op that you could get involved with? Um, is there a tenants organizing uh, group that you can get involved with? Is there maybe a, a politician that? really um has the right ideas but needs help um so it it really is just about plugging in um building power um finding collective solutions so if if you're uh, kind of stuck individually um where you are find people who are who are doing things that that inspire you and probably you're going to have a really great um, transformative, it's going to be transformative. Solidarity is transformative and it, um, it'll it change you. I think that's very well said and I agree. Um, I can just, in from my own experience, you know, just 
being an 18 year old kid and getting involved in anti-war activism changed me very quickly. It changed my attitudes. It changed my outlook on, on life, on the world, and it changed the course of my entire political trajectory. And I have no doubt that the same is true for young people today who are just now getting politically active and finding things like your book, Aaron. So thank you for that. And again, the book, The Future is Degrowth, A Guide to a World Beyond Capitalism. Aaron Van Sinchen is one of the authors, along with Andrea Vetter and Matthias Schmelzer. I would highly, highly recommend that you all get a copy of this book. Aaron, thank you so much for chatting with us today and for this really great contribution. Thank you so much, Eric. It's a real honor to be on Counterpunch Radio. Thank you, Aaron. Listeners, thank you as always for the continued support, and we will talk to you again very, very soon.